You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Okay. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Riz. So nice of you. Almost made me misty. Tearing up. Uh, Hey, it's wonderful to be with you guys. I feel so humbled and privileged to be here with you. Uh, Reality is a family of churches, so whether you guys are aware of it or not, or ever even think about it, you have a family spread all across the world. We have churches in San Francisco, um, Boston, Los Angeles, Santa Barbara, Carpinteria, Ventura, London, England, and you guys are the newest reality. And uh, so you guys have family all over the world that are praying for you guys, that think about you, that love you, that are partnered with you in serving the Lord and worshiping Jesus. And um, my wife and I, my wife Kate is right there, sweetheart, can you just say hi to the people? Uh, We love you guys very much. We're very privileged to be here. Oahu's kind of a second home to us. Our honeymoon was here on Oahu on the North Shore. And uh, our family's been coming over here every year since then, been married for 21 years. My four-year-old daughter, Fifi, is in the kids' ministry right now. My 17-year-old son is on the North Shore going to the mission this morning because he has a girlfriend that attends that church. And it's like serious kinds. So he's on the North Shore. <laughs> he wanted to be wherever she was, and uh, we're here with you guys. But stoked to be here with you guys. Uh, wonderful to see you all. Really humbled. So uh, I'm going to be teaching from Mark chapter 14, which is where you guys are if you want to open up in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We'll also put the passage on the screen when I read it in just a couple minutes. But Mark chapter 14. We're looking at the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with the disciples and what happens there. The title of the sermon is The Place of Crushing. And uh, I think I'll start with prayer first, and then we'll read the text in a couple minutes, and then we'll talk about it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being here this morning with this church that you love so much with these people whom you love so deeply in the city of Honolulu and on this island that you care about so immensely. Thank you, Lord. I I feel really privileged and humbled to be here and to be a part of this. We ask that this morning, Lord, we would hear from you, that your great love for us would be evident, that your grace toward us would be clear that it be received and celebrated and rejoiced over this morning, that you love us in spite of us. With all of our junk, you know us and you love us still. Thank you, God. Thank you for Jesus, who is our Savior and our King, who gave himself for us on the cross that we might have forgiveness and new life and eternal life. Thank you, Lord. Would these things be wonderfully real to us? And as Kelly prayed earlier, would our hearts be soft and open to these truths? And we ask together, Lord, that you'd please help me now to teach and preach in a way that is faithful and brings glory to Jesus. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, I got to confess to you guys that, you know, you know how life is. Life has its ups and downs, and even our Christianity has its ups and downs, and kind of the feel of it ebbs and flows from time to time. And I'm just in a season where I'm, I'm not that happy with myself, really. I don't know if you can relate. I'm just in a season where I, I feel like, as it pertains to my relationship with the Lord, that my commitment is kind of cheesy. 
these days. My fervor is lacking a little bit. And because of that, I just, I, I haven't been that happy with myself. I've just been kind of down on myself and bummed. And then I'm finding that that re- reflects in my relationships with people. Like, I've been super snappy with my kids lately. Even this morning, I snapped on my son, where's the keys to the Jeep? And uh, I've been short with my wife. Sorry, sweetie, public apology. <laughs> and so because I'm in that place and I'm kind of disappointed in myself, I'm really thankful for the text that we're in this morning. Because as I read the text this week and studied it a little bit, I found hope there. I found real encouragement in this text and what goes on in it. And I'm hoping you'll find the same. Maybe you can relate to the way I'm feeling. Maybe you'll be able to relate to some of the people in the story. It's a really intense story at the point where we pick it up. You guys have been studying the book of Matthew. And now where we find ourselves in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's late in the evening. And it's the night before Jesus goes to the cross. It's the night before he'll go and stand on several trials. He'll be beaten, mocked, right, ridiculed, rejected nailed naked to the cross. He'll die there. It's the night before those things. And it's just after the Last Supper took place. You know, the Last Supper was intense. Jesus said to his disciples, whom he had been for the last three and a half years, been with, excuse me, he said, one of you is going to betray me this evening. Like, these guys were tight, you know what I mean? They were like a, they were like a band. They were like a group. And Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. What was really interesting about that is they all thought, I wonder if it's me. Did you pick up in the, uh, that in the text last week? They all kind of like questioned, wondered out loud whether or not it was in there. They actually asked Jesus, is, is it me? We know, of course, that it's Judas. And right after Jesus reveals that one of them is a betrayer, then Jesus institutes what we call the Lord's Supper, where he talks about the fact that very shortly his body would be broken for them, and he breaks the bread, symbolizing his body broken for them from the Passover meal. He talks about the fact that his blood would be poured out for them for the forgiveness of sins, and he holds up the cup, and they all drink from it, representative of the sacrifice that Jesus would make for them. And then after he does that, you guys saw last week in verse 26, it says, they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. So that's where we pick up the story. They've had this really intense Passover meal, the Last Supper with Jesus. And now in the middle of the night, they're making this journey from the upper room where they had that meal, to this place called the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. That's where we pick it up in verse 27. So let's just read. Uh, We'll read for a ways here. It's on the screen. It says in verse 27 of Mark 14, On the way, Jesus told them, All of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter said to him, Even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. Jesus replied, I'm telling you the truth, Pete. This very night before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny three times that you even know me. No, Peter declared emphatically. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the others vowed the same. They went to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. 
He went on a little further and fell to the ground. And Jesus prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him. Abba, Father, he cried out. Everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then Jesus returned and found the disciples asleep. He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you keep watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you'll not give in to temptation for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them again and prayed the same prayer as before. And when he, when he returned to them again, he found them sleeping again, for they couldn't keep their eyes open and they didn't know what to say. When he returned to them the third time, he said, go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But no, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, oh, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. And immediately, even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They'd been sent by the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and elders. The traitor, Judas, had given them a prearranged signal. You know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. Then you can take him away under guard. As soon as they arrived, Judas walked up to Jesus. Rabbi, he exclaimed, and gave him the kiss. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Jesus asked them, am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there among you teaching every day. But these things are happening to fulfill what the scriptures say about me. Then all his disciples deserted him and ran away. One young man followed behind and was clothed only in a long linen shirt. When the mob tried to grab him, he slipped out of his shirt and he ran away naked. So here we have this story of Jesus with the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they make this midnight journey from the upper room to the garden. The upper room was somewhere just inside the old walls of the city of Jerusalem. And from those walls to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, there's about a half mile walk. And as they're walking through the night, they would have seen the temple looming huge. Like it would have been this giant structure that they're walking by. They would have seen the temple. And they would have went right past the eastern gate that within their uh, Old Testament understanding was very important for the coming of the Messiah and the work that the Messiah would do. And they go down the Kidron Valley, which figured prominently in their history, and up the Mount of Olives, which they'd always read about in the Old Testament, where Jesus spent a lot of time. And as they're passing by the temple and the gate and through the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives, this half-mile-long journey in the evening, all of these things would have perhaps reminded them of the fact that they had a special relationship with God. All of these things, the temple, the, great, the, the gate, and the valley, and the old city, all of these things were reminders of what God had done for them, his people, Israel, in the past. And that his presence, God's presence, had always been with them, his people, Israel. When they were brought into the promised land the very first time in the face of many enemies, Moses, their leader, had said to them this from Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. 
And I want you to catch that phrase. He will never leave you or forsake you. That was a formative phrase in the life of Israel. That was meant to form their understanding of who God was and who God was in relation to them and the way that they were to think about and relate to God through the ups and downs of life and their collective understanding and imagination and concept of self have been shaped and formed by that idea that they were Israel, they were the people with whom God was with and whom God said he would never leave or forsake. And interestingly, the New Testament echoes this foundational phrase and Jesus even repeats this phrase and applies it to us who through our faith in Jesus also become God's people. We too are to understand ourselves, Christians, we're to understand ourselves as the people with whom God is with and whom God will never leave or forsake. This is foundational to our faith. This is meant to form our concept of God and self and how we relate to God. After all, we sing about it, Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is foundational to our faith. And the last thing that Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew is, I am with you always, even to the very end. Here's why this matters for us today. Because I have found that sometimes as Christians, as God's people, sometimes we think that what we must do is never leave or forsake Jesus. Sometimes we think that's the foundation of our faith, our commitment to stick with Jesus. And we make bold declarations about our commitment to Jesus and our fidelity to him. And we sometimes imagine that our Christianity is about what we can do for Jesus and what we ought to do. And then subsequently, what we fail to do. But that isn't Christianity. That's not Christianity. That's not what this thing is about. And in the garden on this dark night, before the cross, Jesus is going to challenge our idea of who sticks with whom. Jesus is going to challenge that. He's going to confront that by the events that unfold here. Jesus said in verse 27, at the beginning of our text, all of you will desert me. What a pleasant evening walk. <laughs> there they are, all oh, the temple, all oh, the Kidron Valley. Look at this stuff, Jesus says. By the way, every single one of you is going to cheese out. But Jesus doesn't say that to them accusingly. Don't misread the tone. He doesn't say that to them as an accusation. He doesn't say that to them as some sort of challenge, expecting them that they're going to change their behavior and do better and stick with him. And he doesn't say it on a whim. He grounds it in ancient scripture. He quotes from the book of Zechariah there in the end of verse 27. He quotes from Zechariah 13, 7, from hundreds of years before. God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He didn't say it accusingly. It wasn't a challenge that he expected some course correction from, and it wasn't on a whim. There's something really deep and profound going on here. Now, I want us to think about Peter 
and how he responds. Because Peter is a great mirror for Christians. The way that we see Peter act and act out in the New Testament often tells us a lot about ourselves and how we respond to things. He's a great picture of what we are like. And what does Peter do when Jesus says, all of you are going to desert me? Peter immediately asserts himself as being good and better than everyone else. Did you catch that? Let's read it again in verse 29. Peter said to him, even if everyone else deserts you, which I don't doubt they would, Jesus, I never will. Jesus replies in verse 30, I'm telling you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times you even know me. Peter says in verse 31, no. Pause. Have you ever noticed how many times in the Bible Peter says no to Jesus? It's interesting. No, Peter declared emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the others join in and vow the same. Yeah, 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 we're with Pete. We would never do that, Jesus. What are you talking about? Here's what's going on here. Peter and the rest are unwittingly trying to reverse the narrative, the basis of God's relationship to his people. Peter's making a profound mistake here. Without really knowing what he's doing, he's trying to reverse the very core, the very idea, the very essence of God's relationship to his people. Look again at Deuteronomy 31.6 on the screen, where Moses says to Israel, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you, and he will never forsake you. That very idea is being challenged by Peter, who's a great mirror for us in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the Garden of Gethsemane is a particular place. Uh, I've been there several times on the side of the Mount of Olives. It's an olive grove. And in the middle of the olive grove was an olive press. So this is where they harvested olives off the trees, and then they pressed them to extract the oil from the olives. Because olives weren't good for very much other than eating, and I don't know how you feel about olives, but they're not that great. But once the olive was pressed and the oil came through, then there were all these wonderful uses for people from the oil. They could use it as fuel for their lamps. They would use it as a beauty product in their hair and on their skin, which sounds weird to us, but that's what they did. They would use it for their food, for cooking, for all sorts of things. And so this was a place where the olive was taken. It was pressed and it was crushed in this big stone grinding mill that weighed hundreds of pounds. And from that was extracted this olive. In fact, the very word Gethsemane, Gethsemane in Hebrew means the place of pressing or crushing. The olive press is where they are. It's not just a place of pressing for olives. This was a place of pressing for Peter and the other disciples. This is a place that reveals what's inside when it gets pushed with some real weight. That's what's going on here. And when Peter and the boys are pressed in the garden about the truth, the truth is revealed. And Peter makes these great promises, these declarations about his, his desire to stick with Jesus. And so Jesus lovingly tests it a little bit. Did you catch that? Jesus says then in verse 37, well, sit here and pray and watch with me. 
All right, Peter, that's great. You're going you're to stick with me. You're my guy. You'll never leave me or forsake me. I'm going to go in here and pray a little bit. You, you just pray with me, Peter, and watch. Let's read it again starting in verse 37. Or excuse me, verse uh, 32. They went in the olive, olive grove called Gethsemane, and Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him and became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, my soul's crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Skip to verse 37. Then he returned and he found the disciples asleep and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you even keep watch with me for one hour? And it repeats itself three different times. Three different times Jesus comes back and says, wait, really, you're sleeping? This great declaration. You'll never leave me. You'll never forsake me. You're willing to die with me, but you can't even keep watch with me for one evening? Here's what's going on. Peter and the rest are discovering that they fail greatly in their support for Jesus. Great intentions, big declarations, but a horrible failure in the first few minutes in their supposed support for Jesus. And then when Jesus is being arrested, we're told that one of the guys that was with Jesus, one of the disciples, takes out his sword and he lops off the ear of the high priest's slave. Now, Luke reveals who that unnamed person was. It was, who do you think? It's Peter. Peter's the one who pulled out the sword. Now, Peter hits the guy in the ear. I guarantee you Peter was not aiming for his ear. Peter fumbles this whole thing. Peter's going for a headshot. You always go for the headshot. Right, Peter pulls out his sword. He's like, gosh, I fell asleep three times. I couldn't even support Jesus by watching and praying. I kind of failed that one. I'm going to pull out all the stops now. I'm going to chop off this guy's head. And he swings and he hits the ear. One of the other gospels tells us that then Jesus bent over, picked up his ear, and put it back on the guy's head and healed him. How embarrassing if you're Pete. You're like, oh, my gosh. Peter here is discovering that he, he can't really even support Jesus by praying and keeping watch. And he fails miserably in his attempt to defend Jesus. And then it says at the end of the text in verse 50, all of his disciples deserted him and ran away. All their promises and efforts around sticking with Jesus have outright failed in one evening. They deserted him. And that's perfect. That's perfect. Because it's true. The place of pressing, this crushing place of the garden, has revealed what's what. Here's why that's perfect. Christianity is not about what we will do for God. It is about what God has done for us in Jesus. It's about the fact that God, because he loves us, will never leave or forsake us. Christianity is not built on our declarations to stick with Jesus. It is built on his declaration to stick with us. The Bible doesn't portray us as the heroes who come through. Jesus is the hero that comes through. We're not the faithful ones. Jesus is called at the end of the book the faithful and true witness. And we've seen that in the place of pressing, 
We're represented by Peter and the guys here. We fail in our great declarations of what we will do for God. There's only one person in the garden that didn't fail that evening. His name is Jesus. He's the only one that evening that didn't fail. He also, though, gets pressed in this olive garden. Let's read again verses 35 and 36. It says, Jesus went on a little further, fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him, speaking of the cross, might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. And we learn from the rest of the Gospels that Jesus prays that prayer three times. It's an intense prayer. He prays it three times. And the end resolution of it is, okay, not my will be done, Father, but your will be done. Here's what it tells us that Jesus prays that three times. It tells us that the weight of our sin is very real. What was Jesus so afraid of? It says that he was greatly grieved, that he was crushed in spirit, he says in the previous verse. He's praying three times, please, Father, let this suffering pass from me. There's legitimate trepidation and fear about the cross in front of him. And it wasn't about the physical pain. Don't misunderstand the intent of the text. It wasn't merely about the fact that he would be mocked and scourged and beaten and crucified. It wasn't about that. It was the fact that he, the innocent one, would take on the sins of the world, the whole world, all of my sins, all of your sins, the sins of the whole world would be placed upon him. Jesus, who the Bible says knew no sin, who has existed forever in eternity in perfection as the second person of the Trinity, who has never known separation from the Father nor grieved of the Father in any way. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The sins of all the world would be placed on Jesus. His fear here in the face of it his desperate, three-time uttered request that God would remove it from him means that it's real. It means that our sin is real. Our sin before God has a weight to it. You know, we take sin lightly, right? We, we justify it, we rationalize it, we whittle it down to being something very innocuous. We, everybody else does it. This is normal, this is... But this reminds us that sin is seen differently by God than it is by us. Part of the goal is to begin to see things more like God and less like us. More through the lens of Jesus and less through the lens of culture. Sin's real to God. It was real to Jesus. He had real fear about taking on the weight of the sins of the world. So much so that Luke tells us in his gospel that Jesus' sweat came out as drops of blood. Now, that, that's a real thing. It's an actual physical condition called hematidrosis, where sometimes people under severe stress, the little capillaries under their skin can burst and blood comes out of their sweat pores. Jesus experienced that. This was a real crushing of sorts. Again, he said in the verse prior, my soul is crushed 
with grief to the point of death. But look what it says in Isaiah 53. 700 years before, God said through the prophet Isaiah, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Man, I want you to see the love of God toward us. That he would allow his son to be crushed in our place on the cross on our behalf. And because Jesus would take on and pay the price of our sins and we'd be reconciled to God whom loves us, it says there in that text, God was actually pleased. Man, that's a hard truth because Jesus is saying, please, Father, please, Father, please, Father, don't make me go through this. God's love for us is so immense, so intense that it pleased him to crush his son in our place as a guilt offering. Here's the second thing that we learn then by Jesus praying this three times. We learn that Jesus really is then the only way to be saved. He's the only savior of the world. Because if Jesus, the only unique son of God, would pray three times to the father, if there's any other way for people to be saved, all things are possible with you. If there's any other way for people to be saved, take this away from me. For the, fa for the father not to means there is no other way to be saved. Otherwise, the father would have answered that prayer for his son. Jesus' prayer tells us that he is truly the only way, just like he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way that we can be saved except through Jesus. And I want you to hear the love in his surrender. He says at the end of his prayers, Father, your will be done. I want you to hear the love and that the Father was willing to give his son for us. I want you to hear the love and that the son was willing to be crushed for us. This is good news for us because we already know what the garden, this place of pressing, revealed about us. Even our best efforts and our biggest ideas for God fall way short. And the garden and this story rescues us by reminding us that Jesus is the only one who doesn't fall short. <laughs> He's the only one who doesn't fall short. His efforts save us. It's astounding to me that after all of his guys desert him, Jesus would leave the garden and he would go straight to the cross for them. You know, we're not like that. We'd be like, wait, really? You guys all left me? I thought we were in this together. You said we were all in this together. You guys left me now? You think I'm gonna go do this thing for you? Jesus is nothing like us. They deserted Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. And Jesus would go straight to the cross for them. I want you to hear the love in that because you are like Peter. I'm like Peter. And Jesus went to the cross for us. Sinners and rebels. In the beginning of the text, remember what Jesus said in verse 27. After he said, all of you will desert me, he then said, but after I'm raised from the dead, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Did you catch that? Jesus was telegraphing from the very beginning of the evening. You guys are going to leave me. I'm not going to leave you though. 
I'll see you in Galilee. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. This is the basis of our whole relationship. You guys are going to leave me. I'll go to the cross for you. I'll rise from the dead. I'll see you at an old fishing spot. I'll see you in Galilee. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Don't think for a minute, Pete, that your failure is the end of the story. You don't get to end the story. Your greatest failures don't end the story. Jesus said, I will meet you on the shores. He's the end of the story. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. And I find comfort in that because, like I said at the beginning, I'm in a place where I just... I don't feel good about myself. And I'm just imagining that Pete, that morning when the sun came up, he realized the way that he had failed, what he did, how he had ran his big mouth and not lived up to a second of it. I imagine that Peter didn't feel good about himself either. I don't know if you can relate to those mornings. But when Jesus rose from the dead, the ladies encountered him. And he said, listen, ladies, go tell the disciples and Peter, I will see them in Galilee. He wanted to make sure that Peter, the one with the biggest mouth and the biggest failures of the whole thing, knew that Jesus was still there for him. I'm thankful for the story because it teaches me that my Christianity is not about my commitment to Jesus. It's about his commitment to me. And that's good news. We have a Savior in Jesus who is radically and recklessly committed to us. He has saved us. Not because we deserve it, we didn't. But by grace. And because of that, we're lovely. He doesn't love us because we're lovely. We're lovely because he loves us. Man, we're a mess. I'm a hot mess right now. We're a mess, but we are greatly loved because God is love, and this is grace, and it's been brought to us in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Thank you, God, for these helpful truths. How desperately, Lord, I need to not just hear them, but receive them and believe them. Sometimes my foolishness and my own failures echo in my mind louder than your love and what you've accomplished on the cross. Please reverse that today, God. Please help us now as we worship, as we pray, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, help us to remember the great love of God brought to us in Jesus. Help us this morning to bring our failures to you. Thank you that your word says that when we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Teach us this morning to confess and to receive forgiveness. And teach us to rejoice because of your commitment to us. And I pray for those who feel that they're in their own dark Gethsemanes and their own efforts and big promises and I'll never do those agains are all failing. I pray that your commitment to them 
would be very real this morning, Jesus. They discover your grace and rest and stand in it and rejoice once again.